Hi, this is Mark Lynch of the George Washington University. I'm the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Conversation podcast, where we talk to leading scholars about their research, current events, or whatever else is on their mind. With us today is uh, Stephen Brook. He's a research fellow at the Middle East Initiative at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, Stephen, uh, welcome to UW. Thanks, Mark. So you've been studying the Muslim Brotherhood for a long time and um, doing some really interesting research on uh, on their social services, their organization, their political strategy. Um, you know, looking back over not just the last five years, but over you know the more than a decade that you've been studying them, what what's changed about the Muslim Brotherhood? How would you describe it today compared to what it looked like when you first started? Yeah, so I mean, I first started studying the Brotherhood back in kind of the aftermath of their 2005 uh, victory in in the Egyptian parliamentary elections, and you know, the, there's kind of always been this question about the Brotherhood and and what is it and how do we study it? Is a kind of the broad social movement, all of the things that it does, the stuff on on ideology and religious training, the stuff on social service provision, the the stuff on political mobilization. And I think we always had this idea in the back of our minds that, you know, the Brotherhood was a, kind of a very strong political actor in the sense that it prioritized elections. Uh, and so the thing that has really trans been transforming about the last couple of years is to see this played out. Uh, and as I intimated, you know, you, you started to see this under Mubarak, but when Mubarak fell and the political scene kind of liberalized or democratized, uh, the group, it was really striking to me how much emphasis they placed on electoral politics and all of these kind of different areas in which the group had, had prior uh, prior emphasized, they all, to, to me, seemed to be collapsed into this uh, idea of mobilizing for elections and gaining kind of popular support and making it through the next referendum or presidential election or parliamentary election or or something like that. And so that kind of has really informed the way I think about the Brotherhood and, and also the way that I analyze it kind of more as a, as a political movement, explicitly political movement, um, and, and kind of trying to move away from from some of the other frames of analysis. So you think they became too political, which is kind of ironic, given that many people view them as too ideological or too religious or... Every, but you think the real problem was that they became too invested in electoral politics. Well, right. And, and I think it's kind of an, uh, an irony is that, I mean, as you know, Mark, and a lot of your listeners know, one of the real key questions about the Brotherhood was how much were they really committed to the idea of elections? I mean, this was kind of the classic debate over the Muslim Brotherhood prior to the Arab Spring. And really what you saw in, in Egypt especially is that the group was so focused on the elections uh, that it really, I think, kind of creates a, an identity crisis for the organization. Uh, and as I've written for the Monkey Cage and a couple other places, you know, it's it's hard to kind of sell yourself as a broad movement that the Brotherhood, all the way back to Hassan al-Banna, had seen it, uh, focused on all these different spheres of human life, when your kind of key emphasis seems to be winning elections. And so I think that creates an identity crisis when uh, the Brotherhood is now forced to reckon with what it means to be a political Islamist when the political is not possible. Now, is that something that was happening 
inside the Brotherhood or something that was happening between the Brotherhood and society? I mean, are, are you really interested in the way that the uh, the more religiously focused or thought-focused uh, parts of the Brotherhood responded to this election, election focus? Or is it more that it changed something about the way the Brotherhood related to Egyptian society? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I don't. I don't know that I really have a satisfactory answer to that. But you know, there were kind of uh, some dissident voices inside the Muslim Brotherhood during the the Mubarak years and and immediately after, kind of pushing the organization to uh, kind of take a stance on what it was and and how it saw politics as part of the mission. I mean, was this a part of the organization, but only under this broad umbrella of something else. You know there were all these debates over should the Brotherhood form a political party or should they try to form a political party. Um, and I think to some extent, you know, in the, the post-Mubarak period, these questions were kind of submerged just because of the repeated success that the Brotherhood had. And this is a, another kind of irony with the group, is that they played the electoral institutional game kind of so well that it created almost a crisis for them in the end. And so do you think they would have been better off if they had uh, you know, done less well? Mm-hmm. Or is it the simple act of getting into elections that was the, was the corrupting factor? Mm-hmm. Is it power or participation? Yeah, well, I think it was... I think it was probably a little of both, but but the argument that I would really make is, you know, one of the reasons why they had such trouble in power was because they they had this powerful recourse to the ballot box, and they knew that basically they could outmobilize any of their opponents. And so you see this kind of, uh, you know, at the at the kind of the, the final year or the final months of, of Mohamed Morsi's tenure, where the response to really any criticism of the Brotherhood was, well, go win an election. If you win the election, you can uh, you could tell us what to do. You can set the agenda. And of course, for the other opposition parties, I think they realized quite clearly that when it came to kind of the ground game against the Brotherhood, especially in parliamentary elections, uh, that they just couldn't compete. And so really the Brotherhood was, they didn't have a check, a, a real check on their power uh, which, you know, as we know, when, when you have this, this kind of power and nothing holding you back, uh, you tend to trend in, in these very, um, very troubling directions. Well, so you've written a number of pieces about the, um, you know, the things like the food convoys and the social services um, uh, as part of an election, election strategy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's actually quite interesting, you know, because we talk about the, the ground game a lot. And yet, it sounds like your argument is that by actually using that ground game, they ended up undermining the the, the original value of having that presence in society and providing these charitable donations. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the the Brotherhood under under Mubarak. I mean, my my perspective is that these social services are very much kind of political tools, but the way that they're used, kind of shifts subtly from kind of the authoritarianism of, of the Mubarak years to the kind of liberalized competition that, that briefly followed him. Um, under Mubarak, you tended, the, the group eschewed kind of the real intense politicization of their social service facilities. And, and for good reason, I mean, this was against the law, and this was also kind of a, a direct challenge to, to the regime. And you saw during the 2010 elections, 
the regime did crack down on the Brotherhood's social services, closing a lot of them because precisely they felt that they were becoming too politicized. But the way that they tended to work and the way that they tended to drive political support, as I've found, is not kind of through the classic clientelist model of I'm going to give you good X and then you're going to vote for me, or of this idea that they create kind of more Islamic individuals. I, uh, in my research, I found that the way that they generated political support uh, was, first, it was particularly constrained to the, to the middle class, uh, but also that uh, these services generated support by... Uh, creating an image of the Brotherhood as kind of honest and competent and, and trustworthy, and people used those kind of traits and their experiences with the Brotherhood in the realm of social service provision to kind of make inferences about the group's political candidates. After Mubarak fell, I think that the, the challenge and what the Brotherhood ultimately failed at was to keep that kind of arm's-length separation between the politics and the movement. Uh, and you saw a much more explicit kind of politicization of the Brotherhood social services under uh, the, this kind of period from 2011 to 2013. And I think that kind of changed the way uh, both that, that Egyptians related to the movement and kind of what they saw it doing, but I also think that that created some crisis inside how the movement and how the activists saw themselves. Well, so, in, you know, since 2013, of course, the, the Brotherhood has faced fierce repression and arrests and, and everything else. And one aspect of that has been the, the um, nationalization or the seizing of a significant portion of the social services network. I saw a figure uh, in Al-Ahram uh, a few days ago saying well over a billion dollars in assets had been confiscated by the state. So if you take that away from the Muslim Brotherhood, what does that do to the organization? Is it still the same organization, just poorer, or is it something now fundamentally different? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, we really don't know what this is going to do to the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, the obvious thing here is that Taking those social services away, and you're right, I mean, this was, you know, a thousand community associations, um, you know, 75 schools, uh, dozens of medical facilities and hospitals uh, were taken. But I think it really severs the Brotherhood's connection to society. And, you know, for the Brotherhood, the, the, the goal now is not societal outreach. Uh, the goal is organizational survival. And so you really have these resources that are dedicated to helping the, you know, the families of the martyrs, the people who are imprisoned. Uh, and the Brotherhood is really kind of in a survival mode right now. Is it surviving? How robust are those um, internal uh, preservation mechanisms? Well, this is, I mean, this is a huge question. I, um they always, in the past, had been able to do this, provide for the captured members. I, I think the the scale of the repression now is is really challenging. I mean, if if you ask uh, some of the people who are still active, you know, they say that the re the resources are enough. Uh, I, I don't, frankly, know how how to judge that. Um, but you know, I think we also kind of tend to fall into this trap of saying that you know, the Brotherhood is irreparably damaged or the Brotherhood is fatally wounded. Um, but every time this has happened in contexts in Egypt and, and in the broader Middle East, the, the group has always found a way to come back. Well, let's, um, you know, take a step back. So you're part of a large community of scholars that have been studying the Muslim Brotherhood for quite some time. I mean, it's, it's something which, especially in Egypt. Um, and so 
What, if anything, do you see that this scholarly community should be studying or should be doing now uh, as they try and rethink, you know, how, you know, what's going on with the Brotherhood? Are there new questions, new methodologies, new data sources? Are there, are there things that we should be doing differently as a scholarly community now compared to what we did in the past? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of opportunities that, that we as, as kind of political scientists who are interested in studying the Middle East and Islamism more specifically can do. Uh, we have, as, as you know, Mark, just such a vast proliferation of social media data that we can integrate, that we can use to kind of gain some leverage on these longstanding questions about the Brotherhood. You know, how do they recruit? What are the social bases of the activism? How do they use their resources? Uh, there's also, I think, a very rich vein of historical material that we should think about mining. Uh, we could go back and, you know, when the kind of this question that comes up is how is the Brotherhood going to come back from this repression in Egypt? And I think a natural way to, to approach this, as, as Nathan Brown and others have said, is go back and look at earlier periods, see how the Brotherhood emerged, see the conditions that facilitated its spread. So we could go back and look at the Brotherhood kind of in the, the 70s, as Abdullah al-Aryan does in, in his great book. We could go back and look at the Brotherhood kind of in, in the, the interim between the two periods of repression under Nasser. And we could even go back further and look at the Brotherhood in the 19 kind of 20s, 30s, and 40s in Egypt, and see what lessons we can draw from that to the questions that we're trying to to understand today. Um, in terms of uh, things that we used to study that we shouldn't study anymore, any any suggestions there? Well, I I'm I think that the focus for us is is really trying to just understand. Uh, how this changing and fracturing Islamist landscape, I mean, the challenges that that sets up for us. And, I mean, to some extent, you know, we could go back and, and this old literature does tell us, um, you know, it gives us some hints, it gives us some ideas, but I think it's also important to understand that, you know, the Brotherhood as we understood it in 2005, 2006, 2007, or, or even 2011 and 2012, uh, is is almost a different animal than it is today. And so, you know, the challenge is kind of building on this earlier literature, understanding it, being in dialogue with it, but not letting ourselves be constrained by it. All right, sounds good. This has been the Pull Maps Conversation Podcast. Uh, I've been talking with Stephen Brooke of the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot.